Well, as I mentioned there, since the beginning of this letter, Paul has been calling uh, his young friend, someone who's very close to because your son at the beginning, he's been calling Timothy, who's a young guy, a timid church leader, and he's been saying, stand firm, be strong. Things are hard in Ephesus. And mainly he's asking him, particularly if you look back to chapter 1, verse 15, to guard the good deposit of the gospel. And Timothy leads his church. Things are tough. As I said earlier, many are leaving the church. Chapter 1, verse 15, they're deserting. There are false teachers also hanging around the church. And Paul himself is sitting in a jail at this time. He is chained. It's damp. It's cold. It's horrible. He is suffering to the gospel. And he writes to his dear friend Timothy. And he calls him to stand and being willing to suffer like he's suffering. For the sake of making the gospel known, for standing firm in this difficult place. If you look down at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul calls Timothy there to be strong, but in the grace of, or you might say the power of Christ. Trusting Christ despite how difficult life is. We find that hard, don't we? To trust Christ with everything. Now what's that going to look like though? That's where we're getting to. Paul outlines, after that, saying that in chapter 2, verse 1, he outlines the kind of reality of what the Christian life, what the gospel, making the gospel looks like in your life. Well, he uses three pictures, metaphors. It's going to be like being a soldier. It's going to be like being an athlete. It's going to be like a hard-working farmer. And all of those kind of come together. And he paints this picture of what the Christian life looks like. And he said, it's hard work, yes. But each of those pictures leads to a final reward, an ultimate reward. And he's saying to Timothy, it's not going to be easy sometimes. And we're going to likely forget why we should keep going. And that is why Paul says, we looked at this last week in chapter 2 verse 8. He says, remember, remember the gospel, remember the good news of Jesus. You see, we've got to keep coming back to those basic truths. That Jesus died, that he rose again, and by trusting him, we can receive that eternal life. Look at chapter, back at chapter 2, verse 8. Remember the gospel. And then we saw in the following couple of verses, remember the power of the gospel. And Paul says that amazing phrase, that the word of God can't be chained. When we speak about Christ to those that we know, nothing is going to stop God. Nothing at all. His gospel will work in people's lives. No law, no regime, no matter how stubborn someone is, is going to stop God working through his word and getting into people's lives. Now God tells us that. History testifies to that. And every single one of us who are Christians here today can also personally testify because we were resistant, stubborn people one day, weren't we? A few nods there, come on at least. Acknowledge that. Yes, we all were. But remember how we finished last week? Paul gets Timothy to remember. But now, right at the end, look at at down in chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. It's actually a poem. Could have been even a song. Chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. He says, remember a poem. It's a trustworthy saying. And there's kind of four little couplets of lines. And and we're around four words. The four words are died, endured, disowned and faithful. Three offer comfort, one is warning. But why is this so important? 
Why do we need to remember poetry? Because it sinks deep. I was going to ask these two. They went to a concert last week. I won't, I won't embarrass you. But, you know, it's a, it, you remember songs, don't you? Even if they're Jay-Z songs and they're absolutely awful. But there we go. You know, you remember songs, don't you? They stick in your head. Poetry. And that's why Paul is saying to Timothy, remember this poem, this little bunch of lines, three of comfort, one of warning, because it sinks deep, deep into our hearts and minds, and it stirs us. And more importantly, we can remember great truths of the gospel. Remember the gospel. And here's a little poem Paul is saying, so that you remember the gospel. Now think about this. This poem is given into a culture which remembered so many things. We call it, an oral tradition. Things were handed down from generation to generation by word of mouth because they didn't have many books and papers. They were so expensive and so rare. People would speak in a way that aided memory but so it could be passed on. And memorization was an absolute kind of art form. Let me give an example of this. I mean, how much can you remember of what you read yesterday? There's a guy who lived around this time, a Roman philosopher called Seneca, okay? And he was a leading philosopher of the time. He used to show off to his students. Can you imagine a teacher doing this at school, Joel? Uh, he would get his student to read out a whole book. Uh, like a, we're talking a massive book. And then he would show off by reciting it forwards, word for word, and then backwards, word for word. He had the most extraordinary memory. And he was an extraordinary man, but memorization was a skill of, I could give you numerous examples of people who remember whole books. I remember when I went to Romania as a young uh, boy, and Bibles were banned for many years there. And uh, we went in, and uh, elders of churches were required to memorize one whole book of the Bible. Uh, later, even after the printing press and books were more widely available, even Spurgeon, who was just up here and um, lived up here uh, in Wandsworth, uh, he was later known for his speed reading. He could read whole books really, really, really fast, but then he could quote paragraphs and page numbers in that one quick reading. Now, these are exceptions, but remember, Paul is writing to Timothy into a culture where the norm was to memorise. They're to remember and keep on remembering. Timothy is being reminded of that. Look at the beginning of our passage today, verse 14. He says, keep reminding God's people of these things. Get it in their heads so they can keep on remembering the gospel. They need reminding of that good news outlined in that memorable poem from the verses before. And they and we need to do exactly the same. We need to be reminded of the comfort of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for us. But also we need to be warned. Why? Well, there's so much at stake. Which is what we'll see in our passage today. They're, they're to remind, you'll see on your outlines, but they're also to warn in verse 14 as well. Warn them before God, it says, against quarrelling about words. It's of no value, he says, and it only ruins those who listen. And those two must go hand in hand in verse 14. Remind them of the good news of the gospel, but also warn them. It's like if you take a child across the road, yeah? 
you, you remind them of the good things about crossing the road. We're going to go over there to the shops, maybe buy some things to eat and so on. We're going to go to the park. You remind them of a good reason for going across the road, but you also warn them. If you're stupid now, you're going to get run over. You remind and warn. And one of the great dangers within the church in Ephesus were those that enjoyed, we see here, quarrelling about words. They needed to be warned. Now, quarrelling about words, it sounds a bit kind of like... It's a nothing, isn't it? Oh, people can quarrel about words any time. A bit of intellectual banter, you might say. And certainly in our postmodern age, where meaning and truth are kind of so fluid and subjective, intellectual banter over words, does that really matter? Literally, the word used here is a word wars are going on. Word wars. But what is the fruit of that? Well, Paul says it's no value. Is Paul just kind of anti-intellectual though? Intimidated by such thinking and discussion? Well, no, Paul was an incredible scholar. So I don't think that can be true. And Paul is likely pointing back to his previous letter. In, in 1 Timothy 6, he said, this kind of thing has got to stop. He spoke of those who have an, un, in, uh, an unhealthy interest in word fights. He's even stronger in Titus, actually, in one of his other letters. In Titus 3, he says, have nothing to do with these people if they don't heed the warning. But why all this heat? You've got to, you've got to say to Paul, oh, come on, are you just getting a bit kind of uppity here? Notice it isn't good conversation. It's quarrelling. These people aren't seeking to understand or teach they are quarrelling, and, and essentially underneath quarrelling is, is always that seedbed of pride, isn't it? You're trying to s- prove someone wrong. You're trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong. That's what quarrelling generally is. And these people are very divisive, hoping to look good. In a sense, they're trying to show off about what they know and what others don't. And as a result, it's of no value. It ruins those who listen. So we've got these words of gospel comfort and also warning, quarrelling, warning about quarrelling with words. It has no value and it ruins people. Needless debating, just being picky about stuff, about definition. And Paul is just saying, stop it. Remember the gospel and help others to remember the gospel. Think about the conversations that you have, okay? You're with someone, you're tempted to show off a little bit about what you know. Maybe reading something that week, you think, I'm going to do everything I can to crowbar into the conversation. All that I have downloaded this week, so the person I'm chatting to thinks I'm wonderful and can tell them lots and lots of stuff. Will it serve them? No. Will it serve you? No. You'd just be more arrogant. Much, much better. Just remind people of the gospel, which is all about Jesus. Now this verse 14 acts as a kind of springboard to introduce the main... There's just a single point really in the whole of this passage. I'll put it in two, but it's it's one main single point. And and Paul has given Timothy the big picture of what he needs to do. He must guard the good deposit. He must be strong. Remember the gospel. But more specifically now, what we're going to get to is, how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do it by being a good workman. Look at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself as... To God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 
See, if Timothy and the church in Ephesus to remain faithful to God, they must correctly handle the word of truth. It is absolutely essential. Now, the root word being used here, it's used a number of times in our passage, is the word orthos. We get, um, you know, orthodontists, straight, it basically means straight, straight teeth. Orthopedic surgeons, straightened bones, hopefully. And, uh, you know, uh, orthodox teaching is straight teaching, if you like. And one commenter put, it, uh, put Paul's charge to Timothy like this, I thought it was helpful. Timothy is to set it straight and he is to give it straight. He's to remember the gospel in its straight way. Not adding to it, not taking away from it, not quarrelling about words around it. No, he's to give it straight. He's to remind and warn. That is to correctly handle the words. But let's get more specific. What does really correctly handling word look like? See, when we open up the Bible here, despite the inadequacies and weaknesses of you know, those of us who teach, we do try to humbly come before God's word and attempt to faithfully teach each passage. Now, how do we do that? How do you correctly handle the word of truth? Well, firstly, you've got to be in that smallest point. You've got to try and understand every single word that has been put down there and every sentence and then paragraph. But then you've got to see each paragraph in its context, in its wider, with the letter or the book it's in. And then you've got to see that book about which testament it is, it Old New Testament, before Christ or after Christ. And then you've got to see it in the biggest picture of the whole Bible. Essentially, you've got to see each passage, each word in its context. And essentially we get that model, we call that the, the hermeneutic, the way we understand each passage. We get that from Jesus himself, in the way that he taught in the New Testament. And if we don't do that, what you end up doing is you kind of go to the Bible and you say, I want to teach this and I will use this passage to teach what I want to teach. You very quickly end up abusing the Bible. And rather hearing God speak through his word and by his spirit, essentially what you're doing is you're holding up the Bible and speaking through it to people and saying, I want this to be said to you, rather than letting God speak. I always say, don't I, that when we open up God's word, we want the word to, uh, we want to hear the word by the power of the spirit. Because I don't know if you realise, I mean, read John 14 later if you like, but the greatest work of the Holy Spirit within the whole of the Bible is happening as we open up God's Word. It's a great promise of God that as the Word is taught, the Spirit works in each of our hearts. It doesn't matter how bleary-eyed you are in the morning or how pre-caffeinated you are. It, you know, as you dare to open up God's Word in the morning, God is at work by His Spirit. He is speaking to us through that. Now it may not feel extraordinary when you do that, but that is our problem. And that is our ignorance. And that is because we so easily forget these wonderful truths. God is speaking by his word and by his, through his word and by his spirit. And sometimes our understanding and expectations are just skewed. 
So we try to correctly handle the word of truth. And, and that process I just mentioned of taking each word, sentence, and so on, is called exposition. You want to exposit the word clearly in, in its context. Now, the opposite of that is when you, you kind, of, kind of just take a pick and choose how you want to look at the Bible, incorrectly handling the word of truth. What does that look like? I don't know if you may have ever been to church, churches like this where the Bible is read and then the preacher gets up and he basically just says anything he wants in and around the text. I mean, maybe not even about the text at all. We're going to do a sermon on grace today. Now, everything they may say may be true about the subject of grace, but there's no relation to the passage that's just been read. That is really dangerous and really arrogant. Because essentially you're saying, I am speaking more clearly than God is speaking. Some preachers will have their issues. Their thing is, uh, they may want to say all the time, every time, and they'll get every passage and they'll sort of crowbar what they want to say in every week. Maybe it's a politics thing, maybe it's a relationship thing. They'll just get it every week out and it'll just be the same and same again. You can, if you want, bend any passage of the Bible to say what you want it to say. Every passage can be squashed and manipulated to make you say what you want to say. Every passage can be seen through the lens of your interest. And that is both the danger but also the beauty of language. But the good workmen here for the gospel, essentially the word here is it cuts a straight path for the word of God to speak by the power of the Spirit. And as a result, those who cut a straight path for the word are approved by God, and therefore they should not be ashamed. Whatever their circumstances, if they suffer, if they end up in chains like Paul, if they cut a straight path for the word of God, correctly handling the word of the truth, they should not be ashamed. They're faithful. They are the faithful minister who handles the word of God correctly. See, whatever our ministry, you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm not a preacher. Well, you should be opening up the Bible with your children, with your friends, with your neighbours, with your colleagues. When we speak about Jesus, we must not be ashamed, but work hard to cut a straight path for God's word to correctly handle it and faithfully proclaim it. We've seen a good workman, therefore, but let's see the opposite. Let's see the, the bad workman. And you see that what they do is not cut a straight path, they deviate. It's the opposite word. Look at verse 16. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. So you, you see the opposites? If the, if the good workman cuts a straight path for God's word, the bad workman deviates from the truth. Literally missing the mark is the word used here. It's the same word that you use if you were doing archery. And, and the, you know, when the, uh, the little uh, kind of the arrow kind of flicks off to one side and misses them, that's exactly the same phrase being used here. And the dangers are twofold. You see them? It leads to godlessness and gangrene, which is a pretty disgusting metaphor, but we'll come to that in a moment. It leads to godlessness because those who listen to teaching that deviates from the word of God become more and more ungodly, Paul says. 
And it is so tempting. You cannot believe how tempting it is, as, as someone who teaches the Bible regularly, to stand up here and say, oh, look, I know there's a lot of ethical and a lot of moral teaching in the Bible, and it's a little bit heavy sometimes, and I know it sounds a bit difficult, and just to compromise. That's so the temptation. Just to make what the Bible says more palatable. That is such a great temptation. And you may even do that with the, oh yeah, I know the Bible says about you, you know, but we, kind of, we leave that bit out. But the Christian is called in response to their being saved by Christ to live a very distinctive life. A life that doesn't sit comfortably with many of the people that we know and work with. And the godless chatter of verse 16 could be anything that deviates from the Bible, that draws people away from trusting Christ, leading to ungodliness. For example, you know, I, I might just stand up here one day, again, this is a kind of hypothetical book, but I might just, and just say, oh, you know that stuff about, you know, teaching about sex in the Bible and that it's only to be for the marriage relationship, you know, a bit heavy there, aren't they? Let's just not worry about that too much. Now, most churches aren't that explicit. They're much more subtle. They just won't teach about it. It's a very postmodern thing to do, isn't it? You just, you decide. You find the story of your life. You go where it feels right for you. Very tempting, isn't it? You might be thinking it'd be easy for me to stand up here and say that we won't teach on any topic that challenges your way of life, the way you spend your money, the way that you use your time. Oh, you'd have to rip out a lot of the New Testament, but let's just do that because it'll make it a lot easier, won't it? We'll all be better friends then. We'll all be able to smile a bit more and not feel so uncomfortable and sticky. Godless chatter, that is. Those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. They'll deviate from what God reveals in his loving word to us. Deviating, you see, from the Bible, missing the mark with the arrow, will lead to godlessness, but also gangrene. It's the most disgusting metaphor, isn't it, being used here? Literally, it says that they're deviating from the word of truth, will grow, and the word is to find pasture. It will just grow in that kind of malignant way. It's this picture of something that is disgusting but also dangerous, spreading like an infection in a wound. And we know the, the word gangrene is used here, but I think it's probably really helpful because if you get gangrene, you either have to chop a limb off, don't you, generally, if you don't get antibiotics there, or it can just kill you with kind of blood poisoning. And likewise, Paul is warning Timothy that left untreated... Left unchallenged, teaching that deviates from that kind of correctly handling the Bible is that dangerous. Hymenaeus and Philetus are singled out. You see those in verse 17. But look at verse 18. They have departed from the truth. Now can you imagine this? This, is, this letter is read out in the church in Ephesus. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're sat over there. Oh, that's so politically incorrect, isn't it? And that would have been as much a cultural faux pas then as it would be now. Their particular deviation from the word of truth is seen in verse 18. Look at this, this is extraordinary. And you're probably thinking, again, oh Paul, you're getting so heated. Look at the deviation from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy, as a result, the faith of some. Now, of course, they're right in one sense. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ has already taken place, hasn't it? But they were saying more than that. They were saying that the final resurrection, that's in when we rise from the grave into the new creation, they're saying that resurrection had already taken place. They happened simultaneously. It's what we might call some, it's the beginnings of what we call Gnostic teaching. They were saying that the resurrection life was possible now for the Christian in all of its fullness. They were looking down their noses probably at Paul. Paul there he is, stuck in jail, in chains, you know, cold, dark, horrible. And he's saying, they're saying to the people in Ephesus, hey look, look at where his gospel leads him. And look at where our gospel leads us. Look how amazing our lives are. We promote health and wealth and all of these kind of things. Don't believe him. Believe us. They were saying that you don't have to wait for the promises of heaven. You can have all of that now. And they were saying, you know, oh, Paul and Timothy, they've got gospel, if you like, 1.0. We've got 2.0. We're the upgraded gospel. You don't want to stay there, do you? You do if you're an Apple user, but no, we won't get into that in the debate. But, you know, uh, you, you don't want to stay there. You see what that is so tempting, isn't it? Get the upgrade. Get the better one. all this because they preached that the final resurrection had already taken place. But what do they really mean by that? What they're they're saying there is that they're denying that there's anything better to come. There's no future resurrection for us to come. But that is what the Bible promises when Christ returns. And as a result, what they did with this kind of teaching is they they began to say that their bodies are just useless in a sense, undesirable, an inconvenient burden, that they could essentially do whatever they want with it. They separated body and their soul. That's the great danger of this teaching, to saying the resurrection had already taken place. They look at the body and they say that we separate that from our soul. And if you deny the resurrection to come, all that matters now is just your spirit. Have you noticed the uprising in our culture of spirituality? Everyone loves to be spiritual. Oh, you can do your this and your yoga and your do your golf. Everyone wants to be spiritual. It's the biggest selling topic of books in any kind of top ten category at the moment. Spirituality. Because you, it, it kind of helps with the inside, but it forgets what you do with your body. You do anything, as long as you're spiritual. And that is exactly what's going on here. You see how that attractive that kind of thinking is? Do whatever you want with your body on a Friday night. Just go to church and be spiritual, and that'll make you okay with God. Well, the Bible cuts it straight on these subjects. Our bodies matter to God, and what we do with them matters to God. We are not separated body and soul. We're called to follow Christ and to honour him with our bodies. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're called to follow Christ and honour him in every way, in our entirety with everything until he returns when we are then resurrected bodily to be with him in the new creation for eternity now this is difficult 
It's incredibly countercultural, and it's such a challenge when others are saying, oh, just take the easy route. Make your body count for nothing. Be a little bit spiritual, but oh, don't worry about what you did then and then. See what this teaching here, the warning? The warning is clear. They destroy the faith of some. We must correctly handle the word of truth and not deviate from its teaching. And if we do, it will lead to godlessness and jeopardise the faith of some. Be careful, therefore, when you teach others, however young, however little they know, study and understand and prepare. Prepare well for Tuesday nights, for example, because we must correctly handle the word of truth. Now, Paul finishes with an extraordinary verse. We've got a couple of minutes, and we'll finish quickly here. With his twofold seal of security in verse 19. Let me remind you of it. Nevertheless, he says, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, you see in, this, in the quotation marks there, the, both of these quotations are from Numbers chapter 16, an Old Testament uh, book, a historical book. And Paul uses these to conclude his instructions to Timothy. And together they act as comfort, but also warning. And there are two-way seal, if you like. Timothy must correctly handle the word of truth. Paul is pleading with him to be the approved worker, but to finish, to keep Timothy strong and faithful, there's also comfort and warning. Despite all you see of this terrible teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus and others, nevertheless, he's saying God's solid foundation of his word, it stands firm and it's sealed with this inscription. First inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. Where these uh, little two little quotations come from is Numbers chapter 16. You may know it. It's, um, it's quite well known as the Korah's Rebellion. Now what happened there was three men, Korah, Dathan and Abiram, they, they come up to Moses and, and they rebel against Moses, the leader of God's people. Uh, and they're in the priesthood uh, and they, they just oppose God's instructions in and through Moses. They're warned, lovingly, but eventually they come to an end as God opens up the ground beneath them and they, their wives and their children and all their possessions are swallowed up and the ground covers over them. They all perish. And Moses says that the Lord knows who are his. They were not the Lord's people. And nor are these teachers that are swerving from God's word in Ephesus. Now, of course this is a warning, is a loving, kind warning of God to these false teachers in Ephesus, but it's also a comfort to the Christians. A comfort because it says God will ultimately deal with these kind of people in a fair and just way. But also they are, those who are listening, are God's people. The Lord knows who they are, who are his, and therefore they're safe. Second seal, again from number 16, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. The point here is that Timothy and the church in Ephesus had a responsibility. Moses and the people of God back in number 16 had a responsibility. And so do we. We must turn. We must turn. 
Turn from anything that God doesn't lovingly lead us to in his word, the Bible. We must separate ourselves from it. If we are to stand firm individually and corporately, we do so on the solid foundation of God's word. Nowhere else. We do so secure and comfort in the knowledge that God will keep those who are his. Uh, if we are Christians here today, we are utterly, completely safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 10 tells us. But God will not overlook those who rebel and challenge him as king. Hear the warning if that applies to you. And so we stand firm on his promises. But we also stand firm... Understanding our responsibility. We must turn away from wickedness. We must seek to trust God's word in every area of our lives. However hard that is. So do you see why correctly handling the word of truth is so important? Do you see why? It matters so much. Because it jeopardizes, if we don't, it jeopardizes the faith of some. It can lead others astray. It was true then, it's true now. So let's encourage one another to understand and correctly handle the word of truth. Applying it to our own lives, but also lovingly to the lives of others around us. And let's make sure, lastly, that in our own hearts, let's leave with this if you like today. Let's make sure that in our own hearts, that there is a pathway that is cut straight for God's word to work in our hearts. Some of us are so stubborn. Us, plural, including me. Some of us are so stubborn that we put up barricades for God to work in our lives. There needs to be a pathway that is cut straight for God to work through his word and by his spirit. Let's pray that that is so. Heavenly Father, we hear comfort here, but we also hear warning. And you know each of our hearts. You know each of our minds. Please may people hear, and me, they're not to listen to my words, but they're to hear God's, you speak through your word and by your spirit. So please, do your work and transform each of us so that we might become more pleasing to you, more honouring to you in response to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I pray this in his name.